Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Spider-Man Homecoming. Is Liz getting a new top? No, we've seen that before. Never with that skirt. She probably stops staring before it gets creepy, though. Too late. You guys are losers. So to become an Avenger, are there like trials or an interview? Just don't do anything I would do. And definitely don't do anything I wouldn't do. There's a little gray area in there and that's where you operate. Oh. All right. That's not a hug, I'm just grabbing the door for you. All right, kid. Good luck out there. I'm feeling rough, I'm feeling wrong. Listen, I know school sucks. Peter, you still with us? Uh, yeah, yeah. I know you want to save the world, but... You're not ready yet. You're the Spider-Man. No, I'm not. I'm not. This is just a costume. This is from the ceiling. Stay close to the ground. And stay out of trouble. Forget the flying monster guy. There are people who handle this sort of thing. I'm sick of him treating me like a kid all the time. But you are a kid. This is my chance to prove myself. Peter, what is going on with you? I'm really sorry. I'm so busy. I'm slammed. Don't mess with me. Because I will kill you and everybody you love. With us are Neil Taylor of The Kid Dog. Hey ho, let's go. And Jerome McIntosh of Game Burst. Good day, sir. And with me, as always, is Sharon Shaw. Hello. Hello. There's a lot of abiding love for the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies, specifically the first two. They were a global phenomenon up there with Superman, The Dark Knight, and later The Avengers, and they defined what big-budget summer blockbusters would be for the 2000s. This is regardless of box office, by the way. I mean, Spider-Man 2 specifically made kind of disappointing box office relative to the uh, to Spider-Man 1, which most fans would say uh, Spider-Man 2 is superior. Now, the amazing Spider-Man duology cut short before they could even approach their prime are considerably less beloved and spent too long in the shadow of Raimi's trilogy, unable to carve out an identity for themselves beyond being an angsty and brooding version of exactly what had come before and setting up their own cinematic universe that nobody wanted more than they wanted just a solid Spider-Man movie. If you've listened to our shows on all the previous Spidey films, you'll know we have a problem with all of them in some form. And quite a few problems, actually. Pretty big ones, from creepy old man-baby Peter to unlikable dick web-slingers to repetitious damseling of a consistently unexplored MJ to none of the villains really seeming to have a well-framed end game. Now, after waiting and hoping for Marvel to take their toys back and make something that would fit into their cinematic universe, I have personally been delivered the Spider-Man film I always wanted. I put this down to five key elements. First and foremost, a natural, believable Peter Parker, a kid who you immediately root for. Rather than being hapless and oblivious, or angry and in pain and a little bit dozy, this is an enthusiastic, good-hearted, but occasionally prey to selfish or overshooting mishaps, Marty McFly, who just wants to do the right thing, which fits alarmingly well with how I have always seen Peter when done right. Number two, 
a sense of cohesion with a larger world rather than the empty New York in a world where Spider-Man is the only hero. Here we have him in constant contrast with bigger, more successful heroes. And previous massive events have impact on what he does. Number three... In particular, he is contrasted in a close relationship with an avuncular Tony Stark. There is no underestimating how important Tony being in this film is to me personally. Number four, bright, natural, back-and-forth dialogue and a steady stream of genuinely funny moments stemming from interactions and chaos. Now, it feels kind of cheap to go, oh, it was just funny, as we said in the Thor Ragnarok episode. All jokes, all the time. No, no, no. This feels like you're hanging around kids, and not in a creepy way. Um, also, Spider-Man is always supposed to have been funny. Yeah. Yes, he is, and was. And number five, a general overview of all the classic tropes that we know and love about Spidey, and an extraction of the things we've already seen several times, and the introduction of new and fresh-feeling elements that make this feel like a faithful revision of the character delivered by astute people who still have their eyes on the core values. All of this being done in service of a genuinely great film rather than scoring marketing points for some imagined big win that'll take place several films down the line when they draw all this stuff together. They were like, no, let's make a great Spidey film right now, today. All the mistakes of this year's The Mummy are avoided as effortlessly as though they had spider senses. Which, by the way, aren't in this, and I didn't even realise until someone pointed that out. (laughs) That's just my brief sort of overview as to why this one just scored massive points with me straight out of the gate. And it had already scored a lot of goodwill before I even sat down and watched it, because introducing Peter in Civil War was a huge deal. Because you you begin this version of Spider-Man by contrasting him very directly with a dozen other heroes. And you put him in the conflict, and he is in over his head. So that is where you start with Spider-Man Homecoming. Let's start off with some villain talk. I really, really appreciated the Vulture as, mm. as a villain. Especially more each time as well. seeing it again. Yeah. Um, but the, the issue with certainly um, Goblin and Doc Ock, and it, it comes into a degree with the others later on as well. There's this phase one... Beat up Spider-Man. Phase three is profit, but we never really get to explore what phase two was going to be. There's also robbing banks and stealing tech. Yeah, but they always seem to be sort of a little bit of a means to Mm. an end. Basically, Toombs has a business plan. Yeah. And it goes from A to B to C to D, and it makes sense. Yes. Uh, And uh, Norman Osborn said, you and I, we could control this city. We could run it uh, to Spidey. Uh, that's when he was wearing his Power Ranger armor on the rooftop. Control the city control like the city. a heart from hell. I run New York. <laughs> um, and th- th- that's kind of a vague... I mean, it, it's, it's always been vague. We, we talked about that on the show. Um, Doc Ock, I understand, wants to recreate the conditions of the terrible accident that cost him his wife and uh, his independence from having um, giant tentacles attached to his back. And he's being controlled to a degree by the arms. Don't ask how, don't ask why. The hand wavy, the arms no. Yeah. But if he's trying Which to. Which is a re- remarkably complex series of. Well, it's the arms, isn't it? No, it's, it's him. 
it's him and it was always him. Indeed. And if you look at it from that perspective that he's trying to recreate the experiment so that he can play it out again and get mm. it right this time, then basically Spider-Man spends an entire film beating up a man with very, very severe mental health problems. Yeah, that's true. And <laughs> he becomes Batman. The same could be said for actually uh, a lot of uh, Spider-Man throughout classic Marvel. That's what I love about the updates here. They're updating things which, if you look at Spider-Man from certain points of view, are a little bit uncomfortable by today's standards. The whole the thing about quips that you mentioned before, um, that was always Peter bullying bullies. Like, you know, the, the, the uh, scorpion would turn up and then Peter would basically make fun of him and swing about the place and, and, and make Scorpion really angry and cross. And Scorpion was always like a big, like big jock type guy. And that was repeated throughout most of his villains, uh, his rogues gallery. And Spider-Man has got one of the best rogues gallery. But a hell of a lot of them are like, um, that they're science-based, so they're like... They, they come from the same scientific kind of... They're smart. Yeah. There's a lot of accidents in there. There's a lot of, you know, petty criminals in there. But but Peter basically bullies them. And that's all, that was always, as we were, you know, back in the day, that was always like, yay, the nerds getting back against the jocks. Now, things are different. It's not jocks and nerds anymore. It's great big douchebag nerds being really super fucking mean to all the other nerds. And there mm. are also some jocks out there, but they're not really on the internet quite as much. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, like, like jockey bro nerds who are into Call of Duties and stuff. And But, like, we've merged and intersected. And ultimately now, bullying and being mean to people, not quite as cool. Not not quite as fun. Doesn't Absolutely. really feel like, yay, at last the nerds are getting it back. It's yeah, if you are clearly the sharpest, smartest person in the room, which mm. incidentally Tobey Maguire never was, but if you are, then it does seem a little Kicking bit underhanded downwards. for yeah. you to be mentally slicing into people who clearly can't keep up with you. Mm. It was a great cathartic moment when Tobey Maguire uses bullet time to run rings around Flash Thompson in the original Spider-Man. At least it was a cathartic moment 15 years ago. Though that does feel a little bit exploitative now. Not that I'm the least bit sympathising with Flash. He was a dick. As was the dickish Flash in Amazing Spider-Man that Peter, again, during the basketball scene, straight up bullies. This is an extension of the moral debate on capital punishment. It's not about whether they deserve it or even whether it's a good preventative measure. It's not. It's about what it does to the people who are able to mete out that punishment, what it transforms them into. And in many versions, Spider-Man is a bully. However, in this version, Tom Holland as Peter Parker. I love him. I love him. He's so, he's so, how do I put this? In his performance, he's so youthful and energetic. Uh, youthful is the word. The, do, you, do you know how old um, uh, Tom McGuire and Andrew Garfield were when they played Peter? They were like in their 30s, weren't they? Uh, they were 28 and 27, respectively. Uh, and they were both playing senior year at high school. Um, Tom Holland was 20, but he, when he says he's 15, I was like, wow, he really is that young. And I, I believed it. There's mm. something about it's, it's He has a slight frame and a youthful energy and that big wide-eyed look about him that made me think this is a kid. And it made me kind of... Like, I was in, like Throughout this whole movie, I'm in the Tony Stark camp in in terms of i want this kid to do well i want to protect him and i, I don't want him to die <laughs> don't want him to die and for that to be on on my conscience you know immediately you're, you're presented with it with this uh, kid which is 
fantastic because they've already established Tony. That means the older people in the audience can look at him from that point of view. And the younger kids in the audience can go, well, this is a Peter Parker that I can completely relate to. And uh, the there is a sense of authenticity. There is a diversity throughout. Is it Midtown? The, Midtown High School. Yeah, Midtown High. A level of diversity that puts to shame most other high school movies. It, it just it genuinely feels like they've they've really gone, let's make this feel like a real place, but fun with it, energetic with it. And everyone there seems to be smart, almost like disproportionately smart. Like they're all kids who want to learn. They're all on point. They're not just messing around. I believe it is like a like a specialist school like uh, Peter actually has has a scholarship to this specialist um excelling school. That's why they made like even Flash Thompson, he he he's a jock in quotation marks, but Mm. he's still uh an intelligent person who's just an asshole. He's a jock nerd among nerd nerds. It doesn't seem like a private school, but could it be like, a, what do they call them in America, charter schools? Yeah, that's what that makes I sense. believe that's. Yeah, they're like um, uh, academies over here. Basically, mm. they're allowed to run themselves like private schools. They don't necessarily have to adhere to state syllabus or anything mm. like that. Now, Tom Holland is, uh, was a dancer uh, um, by trade originally, and uh, he played Billy Elliot on, on, on stage, didn't he? I believe so, yes. Yeah. And he was uh, doing, like, backflips for his uh, tapes. He was sending tape after tape after tape to Marvel, like, you know, they need a Spider-Man, so like, he just auditioned the hell out of that thing. And he has a physicality because of his dancing abilities, which dominates in his performance as Spider-Man. If you go back to look at Tobey Maguire... He seems like an incredibly stiff Spider-Man by comparison. He's he's built like a normal guy who's quite bit stocky and built up. He he stands quite awkwardly with his hands by his sides and and he's like I'm a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. And then he swings off and the computer takes over. And he uh, cries some. And he cries a lot. But um I'm just talking about just like how he looks in the suit. He always looked quite stocky. Like it was just as though Spider-Man had swelled. This is not me fat shaming, by the way. It's it's it's, it's me saying I looked at Tom Maguire's Parker and went, "That's not my Spider-Man." Principally because for years Spidey had been exaggerated in the comics, especially during the '90s, post Tom McFarlane, as having a very large head, like long, slender, gangly arms, very spidery fingers. And being very lithe in that regard. Andrew Garfield, by comparison, was very tall and, and slender. But if you watch him when he he's walking around, he's very earthbound. And he's sort of like, you know, dancing around and sort of like uh, booping and bopping. And, you know, he, he's very, like, cocks his head and he's a very cocky Spider-Man. But if you watch the way he performs, he's more like Deadpool than Spider-Man. Hmm. What, yeah. Like, watch that next time, specifically. Um, and, and he's got more in common with Ryan Reynolds' Deadpool than with this particular Spider-Man. Tom Holland's Peter and Spidey have this very kind of, uh, I don't want to say graceful, agile, I suppose is the best way of putting it, which is like one of the best adjectives to describe Spidey in the first place. So it feels like an incredibly natural fit. Peter himself is awkward, but the way he moves when he's being Spidey even and especially out of the costume, it seems entirely instinctual to him. He knows exactly where to put his feet, exactly where to jump, exactly where to land, and doesn't even seem to notice he's doing it. That, right there, is your spider senses. And he did a lot of his own stunts, so it feels like what they've done is they've kind of pasted the CGI Spidey suit over him doing his thing, so that it feels 
you know, while you can see it's definitely CG if you're looking very closely, you kind of forget it because it feels so natural and tied to him. And I think they're probably going to do the same thing with Black Panther. In uh, That would be my guess. There's, yeah. there's no real reason not to. And in honesty, my theory behind why that is the case um, with all three iterations of Spider-Man mm. <clears throat> is to do with what you said about him doing, about Holland doing so much of the, the physical work himself mm. and doing it either by motion capture or by being in a fabric suit and on wires. Mm. And that's really, really important because it's the disconnect. There is much less disconnect between Tom Holland in a suit mm. doing stuff and the by necessity CG Spider Man doing the stuff that he couldn't possibly do because it would be way too dangerous. Yeah. Um, the With Andrew Garfield, when he's walking around out of the suit, he you're right, he's all elbows and knees, he's very gangly, he's he's very spidery in his movements, but ironically the CG in the amazing films, it, it he flows because of, of how they've done the work on that. There's there's not that match between how he walks awkwardly and, and slightly stuck out. If they'd been able to put a little bit of that in the, the CG, mm. then there would have been more of a connection between the two. And the difference between Maguire in a suit, and, and I don't think it's necessarily... Um, about his his size. He never came across to me as being stocky, but what he did come across was being soft. And that's because the suit is soft. It's rounded. It's got no edges. There's a texture to it that make, makes it look like he's fabric. A, a plushy. Exactly. <laughs> but then you look at the CG Spider-Man and it's shiny and bendy and rubbery because that was the tech they had at the time. Yeah. And the Millennial disconnect, rubber. Right exactly. There. And the disconnect between the human Maguire in a sock... and the CG Spider-Man doing all these whipping and flying around there is no connection between the two of them at all to Raimi's credit he is really good at blocking Spidey in Manhattan swinging around between buildings that they nailed from the get-go with the first Spider-Man it is triumphant in terms of delivering us the swinging through New York City and the swooping camera that felt very authentic and so when he has those big frenetic fights with Doc Ock and and Goblin that feels like Spider-Man doing his thing and that that really got the kineticism of Spider-Man from the comics nailed down and also because there was less Tobey Maguire and more just Spider-Man um, you got a lot of Tobey Maguire screaming and crying and yowling and um, someone needs to do a YouTube compilation of all of the times that Spider-Man cries out in some way oh I bet there already is it would go on for an hour It's me again. Your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Spider-Man. Always whining. I I don't want to feel like I'm completely dismissing the Spider-Man, the the Raimi Spider-Mans, or indeed the Amazings. They all have their strengths. It just feels like those first five have much more glaring weaknesses than this one. For me, things that are entirely forgivable for other people will never not bug me. (laughs) Bug. Peter? Peter? People I really respect, like Bob Chipman, who considers Homecoming to be an okay Spider-Man. An average Spider-Man. It's fine. I heartily disagree, so I made it the remit of this show to work out 
how to really talk about why this is so good without making it just about bad mouth in the first five. So I really I want to sort of like move forwards from that. But I had to at least lay down this in contrast with them to begin with. You can try exploring it in a vacuum, but that's like trying to assess The Force Awakens whilst ignoring both the original trilogy and the prequels. The first key that we were on to the right note was, is it when the Marvel logo appears and I was just there going, I know this theme, I know this tune. And the penny drop that they'd done an orchestral version of the the, the 60s Spider-Man theme was like, Mm -hmm. it was like, wow. And it was almost like the signal that, you know, we've got something special here. And and then it kicks into a very interesting opening. I've not seen this done in many other films. And it's really interesting to see here where we see the events of Civil War from Peter's perspective. Mm, but not, mm. not, 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 not just the fight, but the whole getting there and things like that, getting the new suit and everything. Yeah. And his um, over-enthusiasm and, and everything kicking in was brilliant. And then it slams you with the come down after after the the the, the scene in the, the car mm. of stop basically ignoring him. Yeah, like the idea being he he specifically chose him for one particular purpose, and when it comes down to it, Stark doesn't tell him this, but it was a test and he failed. If he had been able to comport himself in a way that meant he he went toe to toe with say the Winter Soldier and somehow managed to snare him and capture him single-handedly Stark might have given him his props but he got hurt and then Rhodey got really hurt so as far as Tony's concerned that whole airfield situation was a complete failure and like his way of communicating with Peter after that was a sort of a a soft way of not of, of trying not to say listen I overestimated you I still think you're a great kid, but I am freaking out here because I think you're going to die. Here's the thing. And yes, it's going there to be is, my fault. There is failure going on there. It's not Peter who fails. It's Tony yeah, who fails. Yep. This is That's... a repeat of um, that moment in Avengers when Steve says to him, is this the first time you've lost a soldier? And his response is, we are not soldiers. Mm. He still hasn't got over that. He still hasn't got past that. He's now trying to lead a team of soldiers and he can't act like that's what he's doing but this is not about civil war sorry although it's it's <laughs> it's very contributory technically you could call that part one of a trilogy and this is part two simply mm. because for peter it was the most exciting hugest event in his life so it may as well have been a whole movie for him absolutely and i love was- this little intro bit with the, the mobile phone footage mm. i just think it's so sweet and from his perspective, it must seem like he did a good job. Like, um, he said, oh, yeah, um, I'll give you Happy's phone number. We'll be in contact with you whenever we need you. Mm. We'll call you. So he's been operating off the fact where, oh, things just ain't gotten big enough where they need me yet. Whereas actual fact, he's being kept away from the major events. Yeah, the, big, the, the biggest thing for Tony in this film, or the thing about Tony's in this film, he is the absentee father. Mm. Yeah, and I, I, what I love about the way this is done as well is that it sets up because because we don't get to see um, Peter's origin story in this one, which is genius. We don't need to yes. see that whole thing again. It's it, in fact, this almost seems like a little bit of an elbow to the whole. Do we really need to see Batman lose his parents again? again. Everybody knows how this comes about. Everybody knows about Uncle Ben. Let's just leave it in the background. But this would have been filming when Batman <clears throat> v Superman came out. Um, but the the way this sets up 
Peter's character, there is a great deal which is implied in in quite subtle ways, and um, his his need to be recognised, to be acknowledged for what he can do. It's so earnest, it's so heartfelt. He doesn't march to the front of centre stage all the time and say, like, everybody look at me, which was kind of the feeling I got a little bit from Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, albeit that he was doing it in a fairly understated way, it was there. But in Tom Holland, it's almost like... And, and there's, a, there's a tiny moment, actually, towards the end of the film that really underlined it for me. Um, it's when he's basically just in class... Um, and you've got the little montage of the whole he's he's kind of given up for a little while. It's the Spider-Man no more bit. Exactly. And yeah. done, done little, yeah, absolutely. But it's the moment when he's in Spanish class and he answers a question correctly and the teacher says, well done, and he just gets this tiny, tight little smile that disappears really fast. Mm. And that is so transparent to me as somebody who basically desperately needs to be told he's a good boy and he's doing the right thing and that is it it infuses his character throughout the whole thing Hmm. which makes a scene later on i think in in the car much more um, interesting Mm. yeah yeah Um, one of the biggest things that i like about the fact that now spider-man's part of uh the mcu is that it's now this is Spider-Man in a New York that is used to superheroes. Like, yeah. just because yes. you like, I love the way people react to him because he's just that um, that he's that Spider guy who's always around, and mm. he's like, in his situation, a very realistic. Like, somebody steals a bike, you might be able to track them down and stop them and take the bike back, but you don't know whose bike it was they stole, or you make simple mistakes like a guy's trying to get into his car and you're trying to stop him. Mm. Turns out. Um, everybody around, <laughs> yes, yeah, my car, and everybody's out there just shouting at him because there's no glamour on being a superhero in New York anymore. Absolutely, and it creates a situation where um, he's. That's why he's so um, looking forward to being acknowledged as part of the big times because it seems to him like he's broken through the like. It, let's be honest, like the Daredevil, um, uh, Luke Cage. Uh, um, Iron Fist sort of level he's slightly higher than street level but not much higher which is uh, epitomised by the fact that he's on rooftops but not up skyscrapers yeah and I I, I like the fact that in the end it comes back to the fact that he recognises no I am about the street level like this is my this is my jungle like I enjoy being able to interact with the people that I'm helping Mm. like just one of my favourite early scenes is him just helping a woman directions to where she needs to go like that is your friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man absolutely this this is the level that he can operate at but Tony couldn't Tony Stark couldn't go down to street level and do that he'd get mobbed wherever he went Captain America the same it's also interesting through that, you know, how you were saying how he, he sort of gets things slightly wrong. This is where you could have, they could, but interestingly that they didn't, bring in J. Jonah Jameson calling yeah. him a menace because yeah. that's the sort of menace they could have built him up to be. Not in not, not the overblown ending the world kind of menace that, mm. you know, like he gets portrayed in, in like the books and sometimes, but just being that little menace that gets on in there. Just something simple that could have crossed J. J., J. Jonah Jameson and he just for some reason just has it in for spider-man and it would make sense especially because like you said you've got all these big here you've got all these heroes now and you know this that would make sense so i was i was really surprised they didn't do jay jonah jameson but i'm kind of glad they didn't well 
hold him back for something a little bit further down the line, I think. And, and you're right, that idea of him being this sort of minor level menace, I think they could quite easily take that in the direction of it's not that he's bad, it's that he's not quite competent enough to be doing this. Like the um, ATM scene later on. Mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Technically, Peter is uh, a um, work in progress of Tony's government-regulated superhero plan. Peter is what happens when Tony gets to put this into effect. It's, yes. you know, the like, he's not, like, confirmed as an Avenger at the end, but effectively he is working for Stark, who's supplied him with tech and is keeping an eye on him. Mm. He's as signed up for the Registration Act as, as it, you, you could be, really, in the MCU right now. He's an apprentice Avenger. Effectively, well, he effectively, for a majority of this film, is running around in a variation of the Iron Spider suit. Yeah. It's just not the red and gold one. Yeah. Um, and if you remember, J- Jameson like, kind of grudgingly had to admit when uh, uh, Peter like signed up with uh, uh, the Registration Act, okay, this guy isn't a menace. But then when he found out he was actually Peter, that caused him to practically have a breakdown, just in terms of and like, having to yeah having to reevaluate how he felt about Spider Man. And yeah, because his main reaction, as is often the case with Jameson, is to react with anger. So I can understand why they left him out simply because he was one of the strongest memorable elements of those Raimi films and there is there was to their mind no point tread, retreading those very well trodden ground. You notice that no one ever says Osborne in this. There isn't mm. a single other one of those other five where Osborne senior or junior aren't the driving fucking force in that film. Mm. First one, Norman, major character. Harry, major character. Second one, Harry, major character. Third one, Harry, major character. Thus concluding Harry's arc, you can give Osborne a rest now. Nope. Fourth one, into outer space. Fourth one, amazing <laughs> Spider-Man. They mention over and over again, Norman Osborne. And, and like basically all of the lizard stuff is to do with Norman Osborne, even though he's never actually seen. Fifth one, Norman Osborne turns up and he's a croaky old toad in a bed. And he says to Harry Osborne, you know, you're shit. And Harry Osborne turns into the, the like weird little goblin vomit guy. Yeah, it's Osborne, 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 and then uh, with uh, the, all of their plot threading, it was going to be that Oscorp was basically responsible for everything in New York City. So See, not having the word or the name mentioned at all was so refreshing. Mm. Not I just think- that. The f- sorry, Sharon. No, 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 no. You go now. See, one of the, the other refreshing facts for this film was the choice of villain mm. because they went right well we've had Green Goblin a couple of times mm-hmm. we had well, the updated Rhino which I never liked mm-hmm. you know, and they went well, what, what else what can we do and they took a villain that's always been a bit I've always thought it's been a bit naff in Eugene Toomes mm. the, the Vulture yeah. and made him sympathetic and a threat they made him uh, a person yes. who would do the things that he would do to get where he is And I don't know what voodoo they did to get Michael Keaton, but I love you, Marvel, for getting Michael Keaton. He is... I I love him. I think someone just said, do you want to play Birdman again? (laughs) (laughs) But for real this time. Yeah, you'll actually get to fly. (laughs) Uh, But he's uh, definitely been my uh, uh, favourite Spider-Man villain. 
I know Keaton was all over the place at one time. You know, he did Beetlejuice and Batman and things along those lines, mm. and sort of went away for a while. And seeing this is the first time I'd seen him in something in the longest time. I, I didn't realize how intense he could be as well. Oh yeah. You know, I, I like him at the start of the film where you feel sorry for him when you know he, he's he's invested all the money he can into helping clean up New York. He's he, he, and you know it's going to provide for his family, and then Stark comes in and f's it up with damage control. More specifically, his thing about they're gaming the system, uh, you know, that yes. they're profiteering from the mess they mess cause. They from the outside, that does seem to hold water. I mean, obviously, like, yeah. this is the, 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 the fallout that we have had warned uh, in uh, Civil War. It's like, you know, this, people aren't happy with the uh, Sokovia situation. Mm. People are not happy about the Battle of New York. But what they managed to set up here is the, um, the sympathetic picture of the slightly concerned Conservative, okay, maybe quite a lot conservative guy who is <laughs> somewhat murderous, but actually still human enough to make decisions in the other direction. Absolutely, but the fact that the underpinning motivation is that he's basically been set up with here are your obligations as a man, here are your obligations as a husband and a father, this is what you're expected to do, oh, and here we're going to stick a great big wedge in your ability to do that. Hmm. Of course he gets mad, he doesn't have anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and you, you feel for him in that scene. And when he punches the guy, you, you actually go, yeah, he deserves that. One one of the big things about it getting across is, yes, we like Tony Stark. We like what he's doing. But never forget, he is still running a massive corporation yeah. that still steps on the little person all the time. I and think this we... is bringing that back to, like, he, mm. may be, like, he may disagree with that, but he doesn't know about it because he's at the top of his own organization and there's all these levels of people that aren't always on the same ball as him i i don't know because i think we get we get lost in robert downey jr's charm quite a lot as, as tony stark but you have to remember one thing about tony stark he's a hero he's a genius he's a, bil- a billionaire philanthropist he's also kind of an asshole well, this oh, is something. Kind of. <laughs> yeah, very definitely. This is something we were talking about earlier today. The the idea that there is a difference in Michael Rooker. <clears throat> it's such a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> Shush. Um, there's a difference between um, the the perspective of Tony in a film where you're seeing it from Tony's point of view, yeah. and how he is in films where you're kind of getting to see him from the outside, mm. um, and that that. When you see his his self-doubt that comes through in the Iron Man films, mm. that's where he shines, I think. And I, I do believe that in the, the, the group films, he does get painted a bit more... You see the selfishness. You see the, um, the, the lack of ability to to grasp other people's points of view because Tony believes his motivations are unimpunable you know he's his his motive even even in this well he always feels like he knows best absolutely and he pulls the same shit with Peter in this one Mm. yeah because he he doesn't like when he comes back and says oh I've been I've heard all your calls I've been listened to it and the fact that he doesn't acknowledge the fact that how is Peter supposed to know all that absolutely he responded. He responded to an issue because he didn't think anybody knew about anything. Mm-hmm. And the simple something is like it, it's a pet peeve of mine in all TV shows and movies of when something's as simple as just talk. Like 
just mm. a couple of sentences could solve this entire issue, but because... It's the communication age. Yeah. And you can literally talk without using your hands at a party while drinking. Take, take this. You sent a flying Iron Man suit to speak to him um, instead of this entire time just sending a text or a voicemail just yeah. one time. Like, it's that weird just position of Tony's willing to do these grandiose gestures, but when it comes to something as simple as informing someone that you are hearing the, hearing their voice, like yeah. he can't do that. Yeah. Uh, again, though, it's supposed to know. It, I, I think Tony's just kind of like it, it, there's a lot of plates spinning, and Tony's just you're very aware that Tony's just trying to keep this one going without like, but he's just returning very briefly spinning it and then going back to about 14 other things that he's doing rather than actually properly mentoring uh, and then yeah. you've got the whole issue with Happy because Happy's not equipped to uh, to deal with a, mm. a 15 year old kid who's really excited and really wants to help but doesn't understand that you're sort of a middleman mm. and you've got your own di- issues but again and, sorry, sorry go on. there is a persistent theme of Tony basically starting fires and then leaving them to other people to put out yeah Usually happy or pepper. Yeah. It is also great to see nine years after this uh, universe began, Favreau and um, Downey Jr. still such, you know, prominent parts of it. It wasn't just a walk-on, walk-off cameo for either of them. I mean, we last saw Favreau in Iron Man 3, which, how long ago was that? 2013. So And he he comes back in this, and he hasn't missed a beat in that character. Mm-hmm. And I really like that about him. I like the fact that, yes, thanks to him, we have this universe. But I also like the fact he really is good. I like Happy Hogan yeah. because I, I, he's a bit of a jerk, but mm. for the right reasons and stuff. And I, I, I feel sorry and bad for him, but I, also, I just do like him. I like how uh, Peter can be annoying to him. And it's funny to us to watch him play the straight man. At the yeah. same time, we also get that Peter is annoying. So you've kind of like you're, tick- you're checking all of these boxes at the same time. So like you can see it from the adult and the kid perspective, and just the idea of a long-suffering parental type having to deal with an overly exuberant child is a is a goldmine of comedy. Oh God, yes. Yeah. Okay, so Aunt May, and I've got a little note here that just says, "Would you creeps lay off Aunt May, please?" <laughs> <laughs> see, that, that's pretty. Much, I think this is hammering home how Pete feels like. Constantly throughout, anybody who knows his art keeps asking, "Aren't doing?" Mm. And you just want seriously? You're asking her 15-year-old charge. Like, are you trying to pick her up through me or something? It's so sleazy. And like, Tony does it, and then the the guy who met at the sandwich shop does it. Ned kind of does it. Um, the guy who, at the uh, Chinese uh, restaurant does it. It's it's like okay. Um, Yes, we got the point. You cast the one younger, and she's very attractive. Super hot, as was pointed out in Civil uh, Civil War. She is super hot, and the couple of scenes that we get to see her actually doing the, the aunt thing, she manages to not fall into the uh, the easy pit of just being a younger version of uh, either Aunt May. I mean, it never really felt like Sally Field was Aunt May. It felt like she was um, Sally Field and. Mrs. Doubtfire. The original Aunt May, Rosemary Harris, pretty much nailed it in terms of the cartoon universe that uh, Sam Raimi threw up for us. And it was like, right, we now have to have a serious variation on that because otherwise we're just repeating ourselves. Also, it was just nice that they did an Aunt May that I actually liked this time because she is one of the characters of Spider-Man. Comics, TV, 
film, whatever. I do not like Aunt May. Yeah. She's um, uh, oftentimes she's used as a uh, an easy way to get Peter worried about something. I do love the fact that she's always there to give Peter someone else to worry about, so that there's always that push pull of "Am I being selfish?" That's why Peter is an abiding great character in comics because we feel those little selfish urges ourselves, and we also have people we have to take care of and who take care of us. So no, no matter what our age, we can relate to Peter on that level, and we know when he's screwing up uh, because we can see the direct results of, of how it affects Aunt May. Sometimes when Aunt May is overused, the bit where the goblin bursts in on her, it, praying in the, the first Raimi Spider-Man, and like practically gives her a heart attack and sends her to the hospital, wee bit heavy-handed, but I guess they had to up the stakes at that stage. But this Aunt May, the fact that she seems like a woman who is appropriately aged to be the aunt of this guy, at, rather than the great-great-aunt. <laughs> yes. You know what? I don't believe you're really my great aunt. You're more like my great, 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 great. All right. Are you through? Great, great aunt. Because she's more appropriately aged and placed to be a foster mum, it feels more authentic in that regard. And at the same time, it's because she's young. It's also like she seems to have put have to put her life on hold for Peter. Yeah. And they never really speak about Ben, but there also seems to be a hole in her life. There. Like yes. She's trying to be sort of bright and breezy with Peter and not harangue him too much, almost to the point where maybe we could have done with a bit more, aren't they? And to be fair, she gets my favourite line in the entire film. What? What the? F- yes. <laughs> Brought the house down. There were so many big laughs in in this screening as well. It was it was up there with Thor Ragnarok. Mm. Side note, by the way, this song by the English Beat, it's Aunt May's song. It's called Save It For Later. Nice. Yeah. I think they, they do emphasise the idea that, um, that she... Whatever's happened with Ben, the thing that they don't talk about, it, it seems to be relatively recent. And I really liked the fact that when she has the confrontation with Peter towards the end, she says that she knows he goes out every night and she hasn't said yeah. anything. She yeah. is giving him enough rope to 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 basically get him past whatever tragedy they're both recovering from, effectively. Yeah. Um, and um, and I like the fact that so much of that is is hinted at because they it's almost done in a way that they have a bigger story to tell. Mm. And if they get all tied up in that, then there isn't going to be room for the... Um, Peter being on the fringes of the Avengers and the the Avengers world that's going on behind him. Hmm. Yeah, I I really do like the fact that what they've gotten across is Peter and Aunt May have a secure, like, trusting relationship to the point where she's willing to let him make these mistakes because she trusts he he won't let it go too far as far as she's concerned. And I think um, given how the movie ends, like, she will play a bigger part in the next film because now she knows, like, she'll have a lot thank of questions. God for that. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that really bugged me with the previous five, where she never really figures out, and it is kind of annoying. So to just straight off the bat, another thing that they did to establish a difference between them is to go right at the end, May finds out and gives that brilliant... It's her reaction of, what the... And cutting it exactly where they did is brilliant. But I yeah. think what... Sorry, gone now. Sorry. Uh, what I do like about the scenes with Peter and May is, that, that, 
there's a subtlety going on like there's a lot of allusion to things that have gone on and how she's trying to let peter cope and everything i think what them instead of giving us the whole big talk chunky thing like we've seen done in the other films it's something that's probably going to play across the two or three two or three films where you know it's slowly coming to terms with everything and, and the changes that's happened in their lives which is a, a nice and different take so instead of having like the big conversations and everything and mm. big dramatic arguments and whatnot no play it subtly and and, and de- develop it over the course of time like would naturally happen you don't just have a big conversation and magically you're over you know the tragic yeah. death and stuff and also the fact that she's not positioned as i mean there, there is a kind of an allusion to it uh, in the conversation with tombs um, yeah. but th- she isn't constantly being put in danger to specifically have Peter have someone to worry about um, worry about like um, Aunt May's always been like someone to worry about in terms of like this is how I behave as Peter Parker a lot of the time um, in the Raimi films Mary Jane was the shorthand for um, like you know, oh god like she's been kidnapped and she's screaming at the end Aunt May was the when it's not Mary Jane. Exactly. Aunt May is suddenly in exactly. danger. Exactly, and yeah. what, what you said about the um, the idea that it's it, she's there to represent the um, the responsibilities and the obligations that Peter has as a person, yeah. not as a superhero. You fritter that away if you make her directly threatened on a repeated basis. <laughs> Plenty of people yeah. for Spider-Man to save. Absolutely. And they can be strangers or they can be friends or they can be just random people. Yeah. Ultimately, this did a really good job of avoiding that whole um, villain directly threatening mm. your girl, your aunt, your whoever. These, he's got your cat, Peter. He's got your cat. Um, <laughs> Spider-Man's cat. <laughs> Oh, by the way, Sonya doing a movie on that, so... Spider-Man's yeah. cat. Yeah. Awesome. You'd be playing Superman. I love it. Let me finish. Superman's cat. You'd be playing Superman's cat. I love it, Gary. Aunt May does a cameo. Brilliant. Obviously, she's in it. Yeah. Support character. Of course. Yeah. But Shannon, you do touch on something that I really like about this movie, is that they they didn't do the complete social outcast Peter Parker. He's like, yet yeah, he might be... He might not have, like, a massive group of friends, but he's still got plenty of people in his circle of... he. That he goes to school. He's in. He's part of loads of clubs. Um, he has quite a wild social circle, and I like how that pl- like they do touch on that. Um, like he makes the responsible choice in the end, not to try and use Spider-Man to mm. like further his like high school career as you go, but yeah. like he leaves the party um, to go and try and do the right thing. And I like the fact that. He does have that that situation in his life where he does have friends they want to hang out with, and mm. um, like he is letting them down as well. They really sold the temptation of that. The the bit when they all go to the swimming pool and they're like, "Come on, Peter!" and then Flash smacks him on the ass because Flash has a thing for Peter. They they really sold how much Peter just wanted to go off and be a normal kid at that point. I mean, there's the whole duality of Spider Man and Spider Man No More in Spider Man Two. This like. Peter's life is so shit in the Spider-Man <laughs> Raimi films that I'm like, just be Spider-Man. Being Peter Parker sucks. Mm-hmm. This, 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 this is a Peter, weird... like you can see that he's got like a normal, well-adjusted life of being a, a smart kid amongst other smart kids, having fun with friends and not being threatened all the time. It feels like 
it's something he genuinely has to give up to be Spider-Man. His isolation becomes self-imposed yeah. because he has this responsibility to live up to. There's unlucky, and then there's like, what the fuck is wrong with you, Peter? <laughs> uh, no, let me explain this. Marvel yeah. is obsessed or they were, I think since Dan Slott took over, it's been a little bit more mitigated. All right. Um, we're obsessed with what they called the Parker look. Uh-huh. So basically, if it could go wrong to Peter, it did go wrong. He was yeah. not allowed to be happy. He was not allowed to be married, to the point where he made a deal with the freaking devil. We do not but, speak you know, of one more day. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the point. They, 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 it's referred to as the Parker look. And, and to be fair, that is what Sam Raimi did in his films. He showed you the Parker look. And yeah. it's... Whereas I, I much like the way, like you were saying in this one, they showed it where it is cost. He might be, so, he, he's socially awkward. Mm. He's not a social outcast. He's just socially awkward. Like, uh, you know, uh, which, you know, a lot of kids can connect with. Well, all and of the kids say, are socially awkward. None of them are totally cool. Even MJ, who acts like the coolest kid in the whole school, doesn't seem to have any friends. No, but they, but they point it out twice. Got, there is that variation between somebody like Liz or Flash, who's relatively chilled out in the company of others, mm. um, and and Peter does actually seem to have a little bit of a streak of social anxiety. He gets uncomfortable hanging around large groups of people. Yeah. Clearly, MJ does have friends. She just doesn't verbally regard them in that way until the end. But the temptation is there, and it's constantly offered to him. Absolutely. To, to want to embrace yeah. that and, and try and be a part of it. And again, I think that's something that, that younger people can relate to. Here's the thing. The group of jocks beating up on the nerd, which, for the, for the record, that whole Parker look thing, that's a group of jock writers beating up on a nerd character. Who then Just beats the up record. on a bunch of jocks I mean, and bullies indeed. them. It's just um, this bullying, vicious everyone circle. Everyone kicks down. The writers kick down on the characters. The characters kick down on the villains. Anyway. The villains kick down on the civilians. Yeah. I was about to say, it's no wonder Deadpool killed the writers. Yes. And why As not? he should. Yes. Um, but um, but no, the, the I, I honestly think if they tried to set it in that context, they'd have lost the young audience because I don't think they'd have recognised it that much these days. Yeah. I do wonder what, like, kids would really feel about... Like, Lyra has never liked the Raimi Spider-Mans. Mm. They're too scary and alarming at times, and they aren't fun in the right way. Yeah, like, Spectacular She Spider-Man. loved Spectacular Spider-Man from the get-go. But every time I was like, which Spider-Man do you want to see? She'd go, yeah, Spectacular. And then we showed her the uh, amazing ones, and she's like, eh, still Spectacular. But this guy... She loves, and she's sort of like been saying, like, you know, I've got a bit of a crush on Peter Parker. No, 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 she was talking about um, the spectacular. I think she's also a little bit crushing on that, Peter. Do you reckon? Because I, I did say that, and she was like, oh, no, no he's no, no, way no, no. too old for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I well, think the lady yeah. just protests too much. <laughs> but, like, um, but, interestingly, there was a little bit in the, um, uh, when the uh, girls were talking, and they were like, marry F. Kill of... Um, uh, the uh, of Avengers mm-hmm. and one of them says of Spider-Man he could be really old he could be like 30 that is actually a really sly line to suggest these high school girls are not there for you older men to perv over which is a really nice healthy line to take you're the adults here they're not for you mm. which is nice I liked that they've made a school in New York City yeah mm-hmm. Exactly. One of the most culturally diverse places in the world. Bingo. So, the, like, it's it's something that should be easy to, like, get across in movies, mm. and they've done it in this one. Mm. And it doesn't feel forced, if that makes sense. Exactly. It doesn't no, feel it like feels... forced of us. He's just like, we're just at a school, and you're like, okay, cool. Absolutely. And you just go with it. High school's is... the most 
you're more likely to have a more melting pot pot of different cultures because mm. that's like a good school is where any parent will send their children. Mm, yeah. Yeah, very true. And I think this is something that the um the We Hate Movies guys said about it, wasn't it? That this was a, a New York high school that they could recognize. see New York yeah. in. They could yeah. they could recognise how it had been uh, they are, portrayed. They are from, from New, New York. York. It's yeah. through and through. When you, you try to squeeze a false New York past them, they will smell it out. <laughs> um but uh, there was a bit of a stink about Zendaya playing, um, who was originally uh, pitched as MJ. And they were like, oh, how dare she not have red hair? And all of that other stuff. And it's like, okay, right. Um, is the hair so integral to Mary Jane? Well, if you that's Todd McFarlane, probably. Yeah. Honestly, um, looking in on it, just considering that MJ was always supposed to be the cool kid, the one who was slightly a bit too glamorous for all the other kids and, like, you know, uh, ran rings around them and, like, like she was kind of like a cut above. And Gwen Stacy kind of was as well, but Gwen Stacy was a bit more of a sort of, like, a good student type, whereas MJ was more glamorous. Michelle, they've kind of gone, right, who's the kind of kid who isn't necessarily a prom queen because they got Liz there perfectly for that? By the way, there's a total breakfast club in here. You've got well. That was that was one of their remits, wasn't it? It yeah. was to be a John Hughes Spider-Man book with John Hughes yeah. feel to it. This was foreshadowed by Brian Michael Bendis in the uh, early arcs of Ultimate Spider-Man, where a bunch of kids had detention, including MJ and Peter, Flash, Kong, and Sally. But in Homecoming, who's the criminal? Strictly speaking, it's Donald Glover. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's only in it very briefly. Yeah. Oh, okay. do you know what? When he turned up, I was so happy. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So. He's been talking for years about wanting to be uh, Miles Morales, and doesn't he, didn't he get to voice him in Ultimate Spider-Man? I believe so, yes. But not only that, I think it's in the cutting room floor, but you know the second time we see him and he's yeah. on about ice cream, yeah. the cut line is... Uh, he, uh, it's about his nephew. Yeah, the uh, the deleted scene uh, which we uh, saw today on the on the disc has. Um, yeah, sorry, Miles, I'm not, I'm not going to make it. Yeah, I'm just stuck. And that would have been a lovely little uh, uh, Easter egg, folks. But ultimately, like we know, it's there. And and he mentioned that he has a, a nephew. And you know, ultimately, if you do your Marvel digging, the guy who played the pre- the guy who went on to be the Prowler was the uncle of Miles Morales yeah. so there is that link there and I expect we'll, we'll see him at least in three but maybe in two uh, what I do like is they've definitely borrowed elements of both Spideys here they've borrowed elements of mainline Spidey and ultimate Spidey so I, I really like Ned as well and I know Ned is a direct copy of a character from from is it from Miles's yeah. friends group friends I was going to ask about that actually Who who is Ned um, he's literally Miles's like best friend from school. Oh. Like he, they've literally copied, cut and pasted him in into this movie. Honestly, so he's Parker one of has a best friend. He's one of the most. I think he was like people loved him straight away immediately. Mm. Like he's awesome. He had this ability to just like he's got that same kind of purity as Peter and that like youthful exuberance and the. <gasps> Yeah, that thing going on. But um, his delivery is fantastic as well. And there's that authenticity. I think it might just be epitomized in the fact that when they do that complicated little handshake, they're just sort of going through it in a kind of, yep, we just do this and this is because we're friends. Not in a showy-offy way, but in a... in a kind of like, there's a history between these guys. Like, you get the feeling of, yeah, these guys spent a lot of time doing this, 
so that to the point where they don't think about it whenever they do it anymore. Yeah. Mm, it's Troy and Arbed. Yeah. And then you um, ask yourself, hang on a second. I've seen five movies and Peter Parker doesn't have any friends. <laughs> like, he doesn't know MJ in that first one. He barely knows Harry. Harry doesn't know him. Harry doesn't seem to like him that much. His dad likes him. And, like, he's at, he, like he, oh, he only just meets Norman Osborn in that first one. And he only yeah. just meets Gwen at the beginning of Amazing Spider-Man. So, like, he forms friendships with them. He doesn't have any old friends. There's nothing He doesn't have any friends. And, and speaking of the way that, um, that they've changed up the portrayal of um, MJ I, one thing I loved about this is Talking of delivery. the the tradition of MJ being this sort of glossy red haired glamorous model. unattainable um, she might as well be polished brass with a little plaque at the bottom saying awarded to Peter Parker for services to society mm. what she could have been Megan Fox was completely strip out any idea of her being a trophy. And the Mm. same thing with Liz as well, by giving her her own shit going on and her own stuff to deal with. Mm. And the one scene where she is in peril, she's with a group of other people, Mm. and it's not a, the villain is threatening her because she's, you know, Peter is interested in her. Mm. She just happens to get caught up in the same thing that everybody else does. And Liz is the one who's up there. But did you notice that when Liz is hanging by a thread, she's gasping, but she's not screaming. And she's not been damseled and picked out specifically. It was chaos that basically decided that she was the one who was going to be left dangling. Mm. I mean, obviously... Well, no, it's she ha- yeah, it's <laughs> <laughs> she, she had to be the one that Peter specifically saved, but it's not like, I'll get your little girlfriend, Spider-Man. You're absolutely... Yeah. Exactly. In fact, quite quite the reverse because uh, the yes. vulture is is motivated to in fact protect Liz. Yeah. I loved that so much. <laughs> I did not see that coming by the way. No, no, I, 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 I was like everyone jaws on the floor. They hid their hand very well with that. Mm-hmm. I, I like how they kept uh, seeing it through the story though whenever with the vulture like um mm. he talks about uh like um have to get home before like before the wife gets home, or yeah. the, the guy who uh, who had the shocker fist originally yeah. threatens him, like something so innocuous. I'll, I'll you want me to tell your wife because yeah. I can tell your wife. And the fact that he's been he's the one who's been living a double life as well. Mm-hmm. I found out that the uh, guy, the first sho- incarnation of Shocker, was the guy in Prometheus who first takes his helmet off. <laughs> and so when he got completely and utterly disintegrated, I was like, oh, I feel super satisfying right now. I don't know why. But, uh, Did you like, notice <laughs> the last thing to drop on the floor is his helmet? Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, love, I love that scene. Mm. Like, um, Vulture isn't, he's not looking to kill. He's looking yeah. to, like, I'm going to threaten you with the array of dangerous weapons that we have here. Yeah. And says, I thought that yeah. was a gravity gun. Yeah. Oh, that's the disintegrate. The gravity gun's over there. That's the oh. thing. This oh. is a villain who has a line. Yeah. And we've been I've, every time I talk about what makes the villains interesting, it comes down to what they won't do. And in that case, he wasn't that ruffled about the fact that he disintegrated him, but he didn't it wasn't his intention originally. And you know, when he's like, you know, I'll kill every member of your family, Peter. There's a little bit when you like, he has the opportunity to completely and utterly shop Peter in. He throws a, a, you know building down on top of him in the end, but he doesn't like you know go right now. I'm going to move him for the kill and stab him to death. He gives him a little bit of an out, and then he could have betrayed him at the very end and doesn't because he recognizes that Peter saves him. He's not a sadistic, murderous 
maniac. Mm. Well, what he's he's a dangerous man. Effectively, yeah, he is, and and he's. Uh, it, at points, he's a bit of a wounded animal as well, and that does make him unpredictable. Yeah. But I think at that stage, his intention is to prevent Peter from messing with his shit. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, Dr. Octopus in uh, Spider-Man 2, though he has no personal stakes in uh, Mary Jane herself, threatens to peel the flesh from Mary Jane's bones to Spidey if he gets in his way. And uh, lest, lest we forget, Green Goblin... Says, me and MJ are going to have a hell of a time. Which means he's going to rape her to death. So, glad that's not in this anymore. And yeah, the idea that um, uh, his daughter is the uh, um, is the potential love interest. And at the same time, he's not vengeful. He's like, don't you dare see my daughter. He's like, go in there, have your little prom, show her a good time. Just not it's, too good. In It's uh, literally like, I can tell you're a good kid. Yeah. Like, I don't have any problem with you dating my daughter, but you're getting in my way sort of thing. Yeah. And I, I, that reveal is so perfect because we have the same reaction as Peter in that one. Mm. Like, we're quite speechless. Like, how do you react to you just found out the most dangerous person you've got been going up against is the par- parent of the person you're looking to date? Mm. And, like, there's, it, it has that lovely tension of, can he tell? Like, can he tell? And you don't think he can tell. Like, even when he holds up Peter, you think he's just going to give him the old, uh, like, uh, don't do anything funny with my daughter sort of thing. But mm. to have that uh, reveal that he, he not only is the father, but he's figured it out because of how he's been acting. The statement, I'll kill everyone you care about, just delivered coldly and flatly, is both subtle enough to not be way too dark and extreme for kids but also delivered seriously enough to convince the adults he means business, so it's considerably more impactful. Well, that, if you think about it, as a 15-year-old, for most 15-year-olds, the most dangerous person you're going to come up against is the dad of the person you're trying to go out with. Yeah. (laughs) And I I, I like the fact they sort of set up, like, Peter's not... Not he's not someone who can hide his emotions. Like he, when they sit up with Liz, like yes, Peter, I know you've liked me this entire time. You have not been subtle at all. You are not <laughs> someone who can hide their emotions. This is Jenny Nicholson again with a skit about how goddamn awkward that scene would have been had Peter Parker not, in fact, been Spider-Man. Yeah, it sure was lucky that old Spider-Man showed up and saved the day. Sir, does she know? What does my daughter know? That you're Spider-Man. Sir, I don't know what you're talking about, but... You're Spider-Man. I'm, I'm not Spider-Man. I see how it is, Pete. Playing it close to the chest. I'm not Spider-Man. Look, I have a big illegal weapons deal tonight, and if you do anything to jeopardize what? that... You sell weapons? To who? I'll kill your family, Pete. I'll kill your whole family. What? I'll find them. They live at my apartment they're probably at your apartment and i'll kill all of them i don't know how to prove that i'm not spider-man i'll kill them spider-man i'm not spider-man i knew you wouldn't admit it but just know if spider-man shows up in my illegal weapons deal kill your family he might i don't i'm not him i can't control that i'll swoop down in my mechanical bird costume you have a mechanical bird costume i'm not your enemy peter what are you talking about you know when I was a boy, my father told me, never underestimate the power of an honest man. Your daughter is just sitting outside right now. I guess it's like they say, Spider-Man, Spider-Man, 
washes down the water spout. I've never heard anybody say that. What you need to do is go in there, have yourself a real nice crawl. Yeah, I was going to. Now, not so much. I see how it is, Pete. Smart kid. I don't get it. Do you think we reached some kind of understanding? Sayonara, Spider-Man. Is that something that Spider-Man says? I don't understand. You tell me. Can I, can I go now? Get out of here, Pete. Hey, and have a good time with my daughter. He's a good kid. I've actually made a note of the various major movements of the previous movies that they've deliberately avoided. The swinging through Manhattan, it, these are things that don't really occur to you till you get to the end, because you're not thinking, I hope they have this, because you've seen it. So it's, it's like, I think most people, like, like some people may come out going, he didn't swing through Manhattan, that's not my Spider-Man. But for me, it feels like he absolutely could have swung through Manhattan and in fact probably was swinging through Manhattan we it's just never Tom saw Bombadil it. It's a situation isn't it? Yeah exactly. Well, some some people will like hold the... that against the film but that's it, it's not having that means they don't have to spend huge amounts of money giving you something you've already seen In my well, mind it it sounds like a practical Peter like yeah um I can't always be in Manhattan I don't live around there yeah. like I still have to get back home after this I like, have to sit the bridge or the tunnel Plus, I have to I leave my clothes in this one place. I have to go back and get there. Like, it's just not practical to be always swinging around Manhattan all the time. <laughs> also, the implication there is that there's so much crime going on in Manhattan that Spider-Man yeah. has to deal with. Manhattan probably has less crime than most of the rest of New York. Especially with the Defenders <laughs> patrolling. I, I, I think you can pretty much see, You know why I'm not in Manhattan? You see that big old building with the A on it? No, not many people go and mess around there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there, there isn't any of that. There's no JJ, uh, but it feels like there's room for it later. There's room for all of this stuff later, but just like establishing its own identity was more important. Uh, there's no old Aunt May. There's no Harry and Norman Osborn. There's no hard focus on MJ or Gwen as a potential girlfriend. The whole Liz thing is there, and it complicates matters, but it's not about can Peter seal the deal with Liz. And in fact, I really love the fact that at the end... Liz is tearful and she's like, well, we're going to move to, what was it, like, Oregon. Oregon, which is like a little nod to Twilight. Um, and, what? Folks is in... Seattle. Okay, fine. It's the Pacific Northwest country, a lot of mist up there. <laughs> it's the same kind of thing. You know, the point is that she's got her own problems and it's not, like, even though Peter's contributory to, to it, it's not like she's... Like she's tied to Peter in that scenario. She like she barely knows him. You know, it's they, they are passing like ships in the night, and this is a relationship that could have been. Yeah, and that's mm. that's another thing as well that makes it feel very relatable. I think to to young people, the mm. idea that this this person that you've met that you really really click with, and you can't see them anymore because their parents are moving them miles away, yeah. and you have absolutely no say in the matter. It removes the weight of that. Peter has to make this big grown up decision yeah. not to be with this girl because she's going to be in danger. Liz is the least in danger of any of the people around yeah. him, so he doesn't have to make that choice, and then you don't get that whole scene that we've had in both the previous iterations of, no, I'm going to make the man's choice and stay away from you, which means that she gets all her agency removed from yeah. her. All five of the previous ones were all about I cannot see you for I have a dark secret. You cannot know the secret. Now I will tell you my secret. I'm Spider-Man. But now that you know my secret, 
you are in terrible danger, but I'm going to date you anyway. Oh, no, despite- you've been kidnapped or killed. Do you know the other despite- and it's Spider-Man my Hill? fault because I must be Spider-Man. The other reference to that deep, dark secret thing? What? What are you hiding, Peter? What are you hiding, Peter? No, I don't care. I did like that bit. I really did. That's you know, it was really funny, especially because they got by this and like, you know, like MJ and Peter Parker got married, right? She, she accepted things. Oh, it's so stupidness. Yes. It's just stupidness. But, so, um... It, but, so, yeah, the the whole... The fact that Peter just has, has this crush and sort of gets the girl, but then it gets a little bit more complicated than... Well, most people gets a life. date. <laughs> yes, he gets a date. MJ or Gwen or Betty Brandt or Liz Allen or Sally Avril or Deborah Whitman. Felicia Hardy. Felicia Hardy, yep. Any of those girls that Peter has dated or just that he knows or likes. It's not like they were getting kidnapped in every issue or even in every arc and held above a device of death. The, the, the fact that Liz doesn't get kidnapped, MJ doesn't get kidnapped, is a huge deal here because it, it relieves Peter from that burden of I can't know anyone. It's like the one time that Liz is actually and his friends are in danger. It's his fault. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so... There's no betrayal in this. Technically, um, you know, remember how basically Norman Osborn turns out to be the Green Goblin and thus betrays him. And um, Dr. Octavius turns out to be uh, Dr. Octopus and, well, that doesn't turn out to be, ter- this, you know, this mentor Tentinju. to Peter becomes Dr. Octopus who he must fight. And then in the third uh, Spider-Man film, Harry decides he's going to kill Peter for the, uh, you know, at long last. Then in the fourth one, Dr. Connors turned out to be their lizard and then betrayed him. Him, and he was his mentor but now he wants to turn people into lizard people and then the fifth one Harry was his friend and then he betrays him and then he kills uh, Gwen there isn't a betrayal in this if anything uh, he betrays Tombs by uh, basically kind of saying okay I won't try and stop you and then coming and trying to stopping him anyway because he has to because he's Spider-Man but that's I mean he basically has to make a choice there between you know do I betray this guy who's asked me to not participate in this well he's threatened me and betray my own knowledge of what is the right thing to do now you could say that Tony deciding okay it's not working out I'm going to need the suit back is a betrayal because effectively he put his trust in Peter and then um, rescinds it, but Peter betrays him by swearing he's not going to stick his head out and get make a catastrophe happen, and then the boat scenario yeah, happens. He deserves to have that privilege withdrawn, and he knows it. That's why he gets so upset. Yeah, that well, that's is why, one of that's the most powerful the... scenes in any, well, it's, it's the most powerful scene in any Spider-Man film for me so far, apart from possibly Gwen dying, which still, for some reason, just knocks me for six in, in it, Spider-Man Two. It, it is meant to, to be fair. It knocks you for six in the in the comics as well. The rest but, of the film is a complete mess, but that one scene... The fact they actually me. had the... I'm going to say the balls to actually do that. I didn't think they'd do it. It also but, feels uh, like they, they had the balls to, and they also rushed it. Yes. But um, what I like about that scene you're referring to is, is, is the other line about where Peter says, I'm nothing without the suit. Bingo. Well, if you're nothing without the suit, you don't deserve the suit. Mm-hmm. But she almost not- like great power. Absolutely, mm-hmm. but we also know that Tony is talking about himself at that point as well. Mm. The essence of that, um, the the lack of, of letdowns from mentors, except in this scenario where it's it's entirely legitimate. 
um, I think you, you kind of have that being reinforced over and over again in the in the um, the earlier ones because it's basically replaying the loss of Uncle Ben and underlining the loss of Uncle Ben and because it is the thing of which we do not speak in this one um, and you can acknowledge it or not it's your choice they don't have to keep going back to that anchor point yeah yeah no and it's a good way of still giving you the whole with great power comes great responsibility without saying it without like you said without referring to it but it gives it in a in a different way from a different person but still makes a lot of sense absolutely and I like and I like the fact at the end of the film he doesn't have the suit and he has to use his old suit but he still and he proves not only to Tony but to himself that he is the hero that he thinks he is absolutely and that that whole idea that he has earned his ethics himself through development and growth and and you know becoming this person it's not that he was an irresponsible kid who just wanted to use this these powers that got dropped on him to win a car and win a girl and yada 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 and and just this great tragedy made him have to suddenly sit up and take responsibility he is he seems to have come to this genuinely with it being a part of who he is as a person and i I, it's it's what for me makes tom holland so appealing because he seems like such a good kid yeah because you gotta remember in this in this universe this is a person who got powers and like directly chose to try and help people mm. like throughout when they introduced him in civil war when uh, tony shows him the videos he's just the guy like he's reacting to things like he's he's seen someone in danger and trying to help him mm. and the fact that he chooses not to go like stay with the avengers and like stay in uh uh their new compound and stays decides to stay in like New York, where people are in danger, like speaks to the why he started what started um, helping people is that he when he saw s- someone in danger and was able to do something, he would do something. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and there's even a, an implication there that this is in part because he's been inspired by those heroes who in this world already exist. Yeah. He's so. The funny thing is, when I think about it, when you talk about like, he's got the wrong mentor. Yeah, he should have. He should have Cap. (laughs) Cap's uh, probably like a war criminal or something now. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, they grew up in Brooklyn and Queens. They're very similar backgrounds. I mean, you could kind of say that Peter may get his powers by accident, but he's very similar to little Steve. What would be really interesting if the like the second Spider-Man, if they do flip it and he then has Cap as as someone guiding him, because that would be interesting too. Because then you could then show up from someone else's point of view the differences between Cap and Tony. That would be awesome. Um, the The scenario with the Avengers knocked me for six. I was like, oh my god, we're actually going to get to see this. And I was so het up with the idea of we might see the Iron Spider suit. And I was like, oh, hang on, that's entirely superficial. What's it, what is this serving in terms of Peter's story? And I was just like, I was really engaged with how this Peter was going to evolve and progress. And it, I, for some reason, I wasn't geared up for the idea that he would be given everything he wanted and then decide, oh, I don't actually like you know i don't want that it's not it's not what i need 
and like so the the, the tombs thing knocked knocked me for six, and then that knocked me for six. It just it was a delight to be able to watch a Spider-Man film and not predict it. Yeah, I, I, like I was saying, it, it's that end thing because he's having to do it in his own, his own poorly made, which a teenager would make yeah. spider suit. He proves to himself that he's the hero that he's always thought he need, he was, and he doesn't need mm. all the stuff that Tony, you know, the accoutrements that Tony gives him. Yeah, but it was nice to have them. Hence, why we get the suit again. Mm. Which, by the way, is my favourite Spidey suit so far. Yeah, like, was... oh no, no, I prefer the suit in what name your film here. But this just—it's so sleek, it's so bright, and it just the the, the fact that the eyes move gives Spidey yes. that expressiveness he's always needed. The Spidey yeah, in Amazing has these dead, like, like, like sunglasses-looking things, and yeah. like he's always had like. The, the Raimi ones kind of make him look kind of like fun sunglasses, like um, like a snowboarder or something. But the ones in uh, Amazing 1 make him look creepy as hell. Amazing 2 is a really good costume. It's got those great big white eyes, and that uh, uh, that's probably my second favourite. That's uh, something that's... Um, it is something that's always bothered me, because I grew up on the cartoons, hmm. like, and even from the 90s to the spectacular and everything and in all of them like even though it's it isn't actually he's supposed to be possible mm. spider-man's eyes are expressive like you can tell when he's yeah. like shocked about something so the fact that they managed to work around and get that in here was like what like it's a small detail that i didn't realize i was looking for mm. yeah and, and it's also nice that deadpool proved that you can do the white eye thing and still have expression as well which was yeah. nice yeah, and I know what you mean about the the animated Spider-Man. I have to admit, my first Spider-Man was from Spider-Man and his amazing friends. Yes, <laughs> but in place of all the things that they took out, I've also got another list of everything that they put in, which wasn't in any of the other ones. So instead of its tall buildings, it's got suburban areas. So he is the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Which I mean, most of us can't afford to live in New York. So while it's fantastic to see New York uh, um, populated by superheroes, we've already had five previous New York-based, Manhattan-based Spider-Man films where he doesn't, he never leaves the island. Mm. Um, and we've also just had the Battle of New York in the Avengers. They've used New York, not to its extent by any means, but they've, like, New York has Broken been, Manhattan's been very well served. Harlem's been trashed. Yeah. And I, I like the fact that there are economic realities in this world as well. I think, mm. um, I can't remember which film it's in, but Steve actually says he can't afford to live in Brooklyn. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. this is on Avengers pay. Um, uh, I think that's sorry. in Winter Soldier, actually. Okay. Yeah. Uh, just to come back to how you said, like, um, it's lower buildings have, like, the big tall yeah. buildings yeah. of sense. Like, I like they use that to... Sh- like with the chase scene with him mm. chasing after the car like yeah when there's no tall buildings his mobility is really messed up yeah there's like a- they use that that little thing that everybody has is like what spider-man swinging on like there's a, a steel book uh, for the uh, for this in the UK where Spider-Man's are swinging towards us, sort of like up into the air, and like we're looking down on him, and Iron Man swing uh, like flying behind him, and it's like, hey, Spider-Man, what's his web line attached to? Because he's high <laughs> above small houses, and it's like it's not the Vulture, because so, this is maybe but Tony's foot no no, no Tony's behind Iron him, Man's but... behind and underneath him so, Falcon but... it's Falcon you, they cut him out of the yes <laughs> oh, man Falcon versus Vulture 
make it happen um, but uh, so yeah we got these suburban areas and just having him running through that and, and, and being out of his element was a really a fresh take on Spidey and then going to Washington DC and yet still finding a really really tall thing for him to climb and at the same time going oh I've never been up this high before and like him freaking <laughs> yes. out at the like Spidey's not supposed to freak out at heights but that made it feel real like this is like a baby Spider-Man <laughs> Um, and then Spidey driving a car. So all of those kids who bought the <laughs> Spider-Man cars from Toy Biz, like finally, like yes, it's just an Audi, or was it an Audi? Like, it was an Audi. Probably an Audi. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, he's like he's driving a car with the top down. Like it just it it felt wrong. And at the same time, like well, actually, if he's gonna get all the way over there, and there aren't tall buildings in between, time kind of makes more sense that he would. Um, also gives you an excellent scene with Ned Leeds. Trying yes, to yes. help him out through all that. Oh yeah, and <laughs> the, the, Spider-Man can't drive. And the delivery of the line, I was looking at porn. <laughs> Here's the thing, though that that scene where he's trying to find how you turn the headlights on, mm. I was sat yes. there thinking, but no, if you're in a, an unfamiliar car, you literally just keep pressing buttons until something happens. And then I thought, mm. well, no, hang on a minute, he's not that familiar with driving, and also modern cars these days are a little bit yeah. confusing. Yeah, you might like, you press can the ejector seat. Like, look up online for the instruction manual for this car. Yeah. Please. Absolutely, gone are the days when it's just right. There's three sticks on the steering column, just flip things so, until the lights come on. So are we saying that just like video games, cars no longer come with instruction books? And let's be honest, this is Flash Thompson's car. Like, he's yeah. going to look for the most unnecessarily complicated vehicle he can find. It's Flash Thompson's dad's car. Ooh, oh, yeah. Also, it's great seeing Zero from uh, um, uh, Grand, Grand Budapest Hotel, Hotel in this. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, he is great. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the high-tech suit, the AI to get to grips with, a lot of people found this, like, this was their bone of contention. They were like, I don't like the fact that Spider-Man now has a suit and all of these gadgets and stuff. And as opposed to just having, um, like... Peter built, talk to himself. Peter talk to himself all the time. And Peter having built his own web shooters, they've done that. Peter excreting web juice out of his wrists. Yeah. <laughs> They've I done that too. Ultimately, the, you know, the, the, they, 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 as you say, Neil, they did the Iron Spider at a time when, like, there's really only a chance for uh, Peter to interact heavily with Iron Man now and then in Avengers Infinity when they've got so much else to do. And then after that, question mark. Give him Cap. Give yeah. him to Cap. <laughs> Um, but no, I, I I really like the fact they gave him the suit and it yeah. had the AI that he could talk to because a lot of the times, like when you watch the Nighty cartoon, he's just talking to himself, which is, I mean, yeah, don't get me wrong, I occasionally talk to myself, but not to the extent that you, you he does in this, and it gives him another person to bounce off because yeah. the important thing about this AI, it's like Jarvis, and I'm, I'm, is it Karen he ends up calling it? Yeah, Karen. Um, the thing about Karen, there's a personality there. Yeah. That that's the very much the straight man, but also the comedian to him as well, because mm. they flip roles a couple of times. Like when he's locked in damage control. How long have I been here? Thirty-seven minutes. What? What? <laughs> and yeah. they shot that perfectly. Like having the cuts between moments of the conversation. Like you can imagine, it's it's just him moving about having this one conversation. But because the way they shot it, it makes you feel like time's passing. But. The other interesting thing I like to use Karen to establish a very important thing with with Peter, because when the suit's unlocked and he says, "I'll oh, give me the strongest mode you've got," and he's 
kill mode. He's like, yeah. no, 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 no. That, that 37 minutes line is when he's at his most Marty McFly, by the way. Like, 37 minutes! He also spends a lot of time talking to Ned in, in, in his suit. The um, idea of Spidey having a team, much like Ant-Man. Yeah. Yes. So it's not just this one guy making his one guy decisions and screwing up over and over again. He's still able to screw up, but like it's we can it feels like that the world is broader than just this one hero can save us. I'm not going to stand here and wait. Also, there's, there's an important function for friends and teammates to take um, when you're in this kind of scenario, especially if you want to put your hero in peril. Rather than having to have some kind of deus ex machina come in and save mm, them, mm. you can have a friend turn up at exactly <laughs> the right moment, which is really useful. Yeah. Which we should have embraced with just about all the films, if you think about it. You, you see in Ant-Man, he's got his team. You In Thor Ragnarok, we have the assimilation of the revenge just, yeah, you know, and it also has <laughs> got his team. Like he's, he works uh, very close to his shield. Mm-hmm. Hey, well, he's got Falcon and he's got Bucky. And well, Falcon and Bucky, so, yeah, Team Cat. So you got, yeah. So they all got teams. And, and something I think I would also say it's something that the DC TV shows do very well because they're mm-hmm. all team based. It might yeah. be. I, I know Arrow. Well, even I started to lose faith in Arrow, but you know, like Flash has his team, and you've got the Legends, and Supergirl's got her team of friends and colleagues, and it does make it much more interesting because it gives you, like you said, you don't have that Deus Ex Machina, you have someone else to help you out, and it makes much more sense, and Marvel very much embrace that, because um, like when when Peter drops into the, is it? Uh, it's not a lake, is it? It's, is there a canal or a river or something? He drops into some water, mm. and the the remote control Tony Star, uh, Iron Man suit comes and saves him, and then Drone star, which, which they set up for in Iron Man three. So yes, stay off there. And I, I was like, I was always freaking out over the pilot. I was like, oh my god, the plane's crashing! What happened to the pilot? And then when I watched it the second time, Peter remarks at the beginning, "There's no one flying the plane. That's so cool." And I was like, oh, it's a drone again. Yeah. So because stocks over reliant on tech. That idea that the, there are people around him supporting him Grounds is him. is really key to how they're presenting him in this because and this was something that I said about the uh, the whole the fact that Peter has enhanced strength as a spider but he doesn't use it in the same way as somebody who just comes in being this sort of big built I can punch things and save the day and if you then make him the lone hero you undercut that idea of of there are different ways for a, a hero to be strong and by it being about interaction and it being about the people around him um you you get that feeling of it's 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 all about the the connections which the whole marvel universe has has become about yeah. it's not about lone heroes in bat suits throwing criminals against walls well no batman's also about having friends now it was he is now. It wasn't before <laughs> oh this is but, the yeah. biggest this is okay i'm going to tangent for you yeah. uh, this is always always bugged me mm. i think it's because of miller in the 80s and the dark knight success <clears throat> everyone goes batman's a lone hero are you fucking kidding me <laughs> have you seen the fucking size of the bat family 
he was never alone even in the animated series because he always mm. had Alfred. Mm. He's never really been a lone hero. It's just he has always had some form of support team, but it seems to be this weird sort of um, public consciousness thing that he's always on his own. Yeah, well, I think like they, to- Robin turned up very early in the comics, but they never put him in the movies because that would make him look like a weirdo. I think there is a bit of a tendency, <laughs> though, in back, back in the good old days, um, that you always had heroes that had support characters and sidekicks and people who without whom their suits would not get washed and their pots would not get done and, and they just wouldn't be able to It's survive. for someone to talk to. But it like the Lone Ranger. I am the Lone Ranger solving problems entirely by myself. Excuse, Excuse me. me. I, I am the Lone, lone Ranger. Ranger. Do you have Excuse a flag? Me. Excuse me. What are you doing? Yes. yes. Indeed. Other things which turn up in this which don't turn up in any of the other previous Spider-Man films. A mentor who neither dies nor becomes a murderous villain. In the shape of Tony Stark, nice someone to who have. supports him the whole way through and then has to let him go. And then, you know, he's like, well, you've passed the test. So he sort of, um, at the same time, it's almost like Tony's relieving himself of that freak out obligation to, you know, the, the idea being that Peter is his own man. So if it's, it's almost like ultimately, kid, if you die now, it, this one's on you. I can stop worrying about th- this being my fault. But he does, at, at the end there, that was something I really noticed this time, the whole thing about, you know, um, uh, happy will go and fetch your stuff and we'll show you your room and, mm. and this is where you're going to stay. Um, excuse me? You're moving him in here? I think you <laughs> might need Aunt May to sign off on this one. Yeah. But Tony's very used to being able to get his own way and just, you know, like push He's things He's very forward. used to it not occurring to him that he has to ask people's permission for yeah. things. I think it's also very important that it's something they like to do. Even Tony has character growth. Even mm. though he's not in this film a huge amount, he's in, what, but maybe five minutes at most? Oh, it's longer than five minutes. That's It's more like maybe ten, twelve. Ten. But he even he has a small character growth arc in this where he, 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 he basically... Ex- he, he he lets Peter go and be Spider-Man because mm. he's lying. It's not a test. There is a room full of reporters behind that door. He yeah. was going to do everything he said. When Peter says no, says no to him, he and what he wants to do, Tony accepts that without a freak out or anything. He goes, yeah. no, good for you. This and he respects his decision. This is Tony respecting someone else's decision, you know, something he was unable to do in, say, Civil War. He sees quite a lot of himself in uh, uh, Pete, so it's not an accident that it's basically positioned like kind of baby Iron Man as well as baby Spider-Man. Yeah, but as we also know, he's also a little cap as well. Yeah. He's got that whole, like, well, Iron Man has never been about I must absolutely do the right thing. Ultimately, it comes down to Tony will do the right thing as long as it is paraded in front of him the the thing to do. Like, he had to watch the newscasts before he decided what to do with Iron Man. Cap knew what to do immediately. I just want to, you know, fight for my country, save people who need saving, and I don't like bullies. Specifically, I want to punch Nazis. It's it's Tony Stark's brain with Captain America's heart. That's the sort of Spider-Man that we have. Which is actually a good combination. Yeah. That's that's a really good way of putting it, actually, that that ultimately Steve is motivated by internal um, factors and Tony introjects a lot of what goes on Mm. outside. Yeah. I can see a My Two Dads remake. <laughs> hey, this part of your premise for Homecoming coming to or Spider Man 2. I, I like that idea. Mm-hmm. I, I'm very interested to see what they do with the Infinity War stuff where he's going to be in there because then he hopefully 
I don't know how they're going to do it, whether it's all teams, one big team, or people split off. I want to see the interaction. I do want to see Spider-Man Cap interaction. I really, really want it so badly. Mm. Also, but, Sp- Spider-Man and Hulk. That has to happen at some point. Spider-Man and Hulk has to happen. Yeah. Also, I, I, I have a suspicious feeling if anyone gets that gauntlet, it's actually going to be Spidey and think? not Cap. Wow. I think it'll be Spidey. Okay. Because he's the most pure and honest of them all. Other things that aren't in any other um, Spider-Man movies. Liz with her own problems beyond Pete. Because basically everything about Gwen seemed to be tied up in Pete. Uh, Everything about MJ seemed to be tied up in Pete. There's something to do with her dad, but she never really talks about it. It's like, just don't ask. Just don't ask, Peter. And it's like, no... I want to ask. Peter has zero interest in anything that's going on that isn't directly related to him. Yeah, he's like, you know, the great thing about Spider-Man, and then MJ gives him that look, and it's like, would you shut the fuck up about Spider-Man for six seconds? Mm-hmm. And that relationship ain't going nowhere. What, you mean that Liz is actually a fully thought-out character? She's she's definitely well-rounded enough to, to feel real. Yeah. Mm. Yes. But it's actually, you can sum up the way her character's put across with the line about last week, the most important thing in the world was the decathlon, and then I almost died. Mm. Um, high school life at a level that doesn't seem just like a movie. You know in movies where um, it cuts to a uh, high school class, they're finishing off, and then the bell rings. And it's like, that's all the concession we're going to make to this being set in a high school. <clears throat> this feels specifically because there's so much kid interaction and like the, the kids are doing extracurricular stuff way beyond what they've been asked and they're, cle- they're clearly up f- you know up for doing more than is required of them they're the fact that it's actually at a like a uh, you know a prestigious school or like something where they're actually expected to excel and they are working hard at it makes it feel real as opposed to high school which in most movies where it just seems to be from the perspective of people who haven't been to high school for 15 years, at least. And they're just like, what was it? It was just jocks shoving nerds into lockers, as I recall. And the last one minute of all lessons. Mm -hmm. (coughs) But yeah, this feels like a high school, which it never did before. Which was interesting enough is the one thing that when they sort of announced all this really concerned me because I really get gets on my wig that everyone goes yes and Spider-Man should be in high school and da, da, da. it's like because that's what we remember it's like you do realise that Spider-Man hasn't been in high school in the comics for like 30, 40 years I feel like they're never going to let him really grow up on, on the big screen for movies no. because they want the kids to buy his toys so even if he's played by 35 year old Tobey Maguire he's still positioned as a youngish man yeah uh, but I was happy to say I can watch this like no, I'm happy they did this. I enjoyed it. Yeah. You know, it was just one of those things which, uh, when I when they said oh high school, it's like oh god, he hasn't been there for so long. And like he was married in the 80s or something, or even the 70s. So it's like it's been so long. Mm. It's, it just feels really weird that there's this. It's again, it's like this weird perception that Spider-Man has to be in high school. Yet in this film, it it works because the actor's young enough, so you believe it. There's, there's important characters and friends and every the high school feels real like you were saying mm. so it just all adds into making just the nice bits on the side that just make it work yeah it feels real it feels like a world and part of that is that they've spent so much time building the, the MCU anyway but I think you, you're absolutely right about getting a young actor Neil I, I think the essence of this for me is that Tom Holland is a Spider-Man I feel like they could let grow up Hmm. 
that yes. we, we could see him become an adult Spider-Man. If he wants to stick around, he could be in this role for the best part of 20 years. Mm. You know, this, this is a Spider-Man I could see myself growing old with. <laughs> or, you know, if, <laughs> or, you know, if he wants to move on, they can go the Ultimate Universe route. Just saying, that would be kind of ballsy. True. Also, did you notice the high school was run by Howling Commando? I did, yeah. He's yeah. Uh, um, uh, Mr. Morita um, was uh, one of the originally one of Cap's Howling Commanders, and that I'm assuming is his grandfather. Uh, yes, I would assume so because if because I, I didn't notice this until like the mm. second viewing or something. He's like, oh wait, no, that's and you look in the look on the the stand, his picture of the Howling Commander. So I would assume it's a descendant. Mm. So that was kind of cool. Yeah, it was Kenneth Choi who played Principal Morita, who also played Jim Morita, which also means that Bucky technically. The Winter Soldier has a cameo in Spider-Man Homecoming because he's in the photo. I read that in a BuzzFeed article entitled Avengers Infinity War Shocker. It's not like BuzzFeed to exploit the trend du jour in order to partition out a tiny tidbit of otherwise unrelated information. So yeah, the, the other things that are, well, aren't in any of the other Spider-Man films, villains were clear endgames, the only cinematic rich superhero populated world that's ever been in a Spider-Man before, uh, and uh, Teenage Parker being played by an actor aged 20, not 27 or 28, and them sticking with the high school thing. Like, the next one's going to be his, what is that, sophomore year? That's at the, the, what's the middle one? Oh. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Is it sophomore? Yeah, yeah it's uh, juniors. So, is it juniors? I I have no Freshman. idea. Freshman, sophomore, and uh, seniors. Yeah, he's, he's fifteen. By the time he's finished here, he'll be eighteen. But to that end, it, the series it reminds me the most of is Harry Potter. It felt authentic, like specifically Harry Potter from Azkaban onwards, when the kids got to really mess up their uniforms and just like talk like actual kids to each other. It has that sense of authenticity, and I feel that we're going to be able to like see this guy grow up. Um, even though he is twenty, it feels like that maturity will be you know hard won over a number of years, uh, rather than it just being. L- there was something that felt like, well, what villain can we do in this next one for about about the Raimi ones? They were talking about Mo- you know Morbius, the living vampire for Spider Man Four. Oh God! No. And he's now going to get his own film because. You know, oh God, no. Unless it's going to have Blade in I was going to say, that's the only, like, you know, if you could oh, possibly no way, pick it up. Oh, no Blade back. Yeah. Well, you could bring, well, no, you know, the, that way you can thus play with Blade. You can go, right, Sony, yes, you can do a Morbius movie, but if you're going to do it, um, we want to write it, and we've got Blade right here. Actual Wesley Snipes Blade, specifically. Somebody did say if if you're going to do Blade in the MCU, just fold in the existing Blade trilogy. Yeah, really? he's been fighting wanna... vampires this entire time. It's just like nobody's been paying attention. Yeah. The world you live in is just a sugar-coated topping. Uh... I, I wouldn't call this sugar-coated coated. <laughs> yeah. Trilogy, yeah. if you want to fold in that, you have to fold in Blade Trinity. No, we, we... don't. No, you don't. No, we don't. No, we don't, Neil. You can't make me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sure, Mum. I'll go fight you on that one because ha- I'd happily push that one out. Because even though it had Ryan Reynolds, Ryan Reynolds mm. is in a much better movie. I would also say uh, the, the ferry sequence uh, was the most um, like, effective action sequence for me uh, of any Spider-Man film. While the train uh, sequence in, in two is still dazzling, 
Again, all of these things we've already said meant that I was really committed to this particular Peter's journey. So I knew that when he started to mess up, it was like, oh, God, no. So when he's pulled into the cruciform and it's like, that's a bit heavy handed. But I completely understand why he would try to give his all to try and save these people and unfuck this fucked up situation that he's just caused. Uh, there's a genuine tension there. And I was like, like hands to my mouth in the cinema. I was like, oh, God, please don't like start. Uh, letting people die because I don't want this Peter to be brooding on this and like for, for this to be the thing that ruins his life this terrible terrible decision because he didn't like it wasn't like you could see where he would have thought he was in control yeah. to begin with on this one also the having having him in that position hmm. is it's the metaphor for Peter they do it in um, in Spider-Man 1, he's pulled between MJ and the cable car for yeah. the kids. Spider-Man 2, two he's at the front of the train, the train holding on with both of them. Yeah. And it's it's this idea that he is being pulled in two directions mm. and he, he ultimately has to make a choice. And he doesn't want to make a choice. He wants to be able to do it all. He wants to be able to fix everything. And in both cases, because it's about his webbing and it's about him being in the middle, he is the safety net for the innocent. Mm. He is the thing being pulled and pulled and pulled to breaking point. Absolutely, but this is the this is the stakes with mm. him. It's not about you might get hurt. It's about these people mm. that you have chosen to take responsibility for yeah. um, might get hurt, and this is why it, it means more to me. Weirdly, if it's a bunch of strangers that he has chosen to try and save, yeah. than yeah. if it's a your girlfriend dropped off a rope off a bridge. Yeah, not only that the. Uh, technically, ultimately, the, the if if it's a girlfriend who's been taken and kidnapped, all you need there is a Liam Neeson who's you're going to be taken. You've taken my girlfriend, uh, and then then you know ultimately, uh, all of us would probably fight tooth and nail for our loved ones. That's not uh, just because Spider Man has spider powers that makes it a bit more visually spectacular. It's the putting yourself in serious danger to try to save regular people that makes him a hero. Yeah. And one of the key things that they did with this, all the stakes are much lower than a lot of the other Marvel movies, but yeah. they're much more connected to him, which makes them more important. The yeah. ferry scene, the the uh, part one of the confrontation with Vulture in his warehouse, and the scene that made me freak out because I'm mm. claustrophobic as all hell. The one from uh, Spider Man, Amazing Spider-Man number 33, where he pulls all that masonry up uh, just to get out. That's... It is an absolute classic Spider-Man scene. It, it was even replicated in Spectacular. And what were you going to say, Neil? Sorry. Uh, that, I mean, that was an interesting show. Out, yeah. it, I'm claustrophobic, so that bit was really hard to watch. But yeah. it was also a very good moment of triumph for Peter when he realises, oh, wait, I'm stronger than I think I am. But he gets so low at that point when he's crying out for help. It's, it's like, so futile so sounding. Yeah. Who are you crying to at this point? You know there's no one around, but that's this, there's this panic and tremor in his voice. That's that's a trapped puppy. That is a yeah. young creature out of its depth and realising that. Hello! Hello! Please! Hey, please! I'm down here! I'm down here! I'm stuck! I'm stuck! I can't move! I can't... (sighs) 
take this one scene over 10,000 shots of Tobey Maguire's crying face. If you're nothing without this suit, then you shouldn't have it. This this moment, that scene, gets me every single time. It's so strong and so powerful because, and this goes back to what I was saying way back at the beginning of the podcast. This the fact that he is so hungry for recognition, for for somebody to say to him, "Yes, I see you are a good person and you are doing the right thing and you deserve to to be okay." But what gets him out of this is he recognises himself. He sees his own face and the spider mask. And that conflation makes him realise who he is. And the fact that he is talking to himself at that point, that come on, Spider-Man, you can do it. He desperately wants that from other people. But what saves him is being able to bring that out of himself. He finally believes in himself. Absolutely, absolutely. And that is what makes him stronger than he's ever been because then if you, if you have that within you and that comes, like we were saying about Steve, this is why Steve, to me, will always be the stronger of, of the two. doesn't matter how fantastic Tony's suits get, they are not him. His, his drive does not come from within. It comes from things outside himself. Steve is all within, and it would have been there whether he had the serum or not. And that's what Peter draws on here. This is what is in him. It's always been there, but he needs that reflection to be able to see it, and that's what lets him get himself out of that situation. It's fine. It's better than fine. And then the final confrontation is a, a fight... Well, partly on a plane and partly on, uh, and mostly on a beach. Mm. And again, we're not talking about it's not Sokovia about to be dropped into the earth. It's not a portal to another dimension or further into space, you know, or any of the other things. It's such a small scale, but important to those characters that make it work. And especially at the end where Peter realizes that if Vulture takes off, mm. it will kill him. And he still fights. He fights this time not to beat him but to save him yeah yeah they they thread throughout the movie like he he is someone who will try and save the bad guy like when he jumps down and uh interrupts the deal going on he says no point the gun at me point the gun at me I, he's not involved with this like mm. i'm the one you're putting who's the problem here like don't hurt the hurt this very clear criminal mm. um but he's still trying to ensure like he's the one who should be put in danger not anybody else yeah Oh, so much to love about this film. Okay, the major reason why this just knocked it out of the park for me in terms of which Spider-Man film is my favourite, it's got one of my favourite elements of storytelling, which is especially important right now. Um, It's present in uh, The Force Awakens, which is one of the reasons why The Force Awakens is my favourite Star Wars film. We've had the nine years now of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It began with Iron Man. Iron Man was the hero for a new generation. He was, he was a man approaching middle age, only just deciding to be a hero, which is significant considering when it was released. Tony was very deliberately positioned as a man from within the system, who was sired by the system and profited from the system, standing up to oppose the corruption within that system. The only reason he's not Robin of Loxley is because he kept his cash. Now, nine years on, Tony's the the elder statesman hero, and he's 
looking for effectively an apprentice and he's kind of in two minds about Peter and by the end he's like you know what you you passed the test you are suitable to be my, you know kind of my the, the guy who I'm going to keep directly under my wing here and you know I'll, I'll keep promoting you within the Avengers ranks and you'll you know I'll keep a close eye on you but basically Tony's trying to pass the torch on to Peter and at the same time he doesn't recognize the fact that if he controls Peter which is what he's planning to do there's no torch passing at all any mistakes of his generation will be mirrored in Peter's Peter deciding to strike out on his own and go you know what I think I got this it's absolutely vital that Peter do this his way that he makes his own mistakes but uses what he's learned to help the world as an evolution of the previous generation not a copy not a reiteration it's most definitely not about him being Tony's iron spider though of course I'd put good money on him donning that costume at some point in Infinity War but the torch just uh, naturally gets passed to him anyway you don't have to wrest it from, from Tony's grip at that point Tony uh, trusts Peter at the end and that means huge amounts it's less of a passing of the torch as I've, I've got my own fire going here um you can keep your... Your touch sucks. I'm going to go on my own. I've got an electric um, uh, light bulb over here. You can keep your, your torch. <laughs> <laughs> right so, yeah, ultimately, there's there's absolutely none of that in the original, uh, the quintet of uh, previous Spider-Man films, because it's not that kind of uh, film series. It's all about, you know... W- ultimately, it came just after 9-11, and it was about... Originally, they didn't realize how apt this would be, but just a hero who pulls people out of uh, buildings uh, and you know rescues them from terrible situations, uh, and you know when there are people out out there who would seek to harm, will stand in the way, and that was a great hero metaphor for for the original Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. The this amazing series got really confused about exactly what it was trying to say. Uh, I think it was something along the lines of um, I heroes, right? Yes, I, I want to find out answers to all of these secrets. Um, Heroes investigate things; they solve mysteries. Yeah, while well, hanging off a building. I, that feels like I'm getting at the Amazing series, but you know, th- th- there was a lot less of a clear-cut case of you know they they had big a lot hero. more trouble. Like I say, the, the, the lot of the studio yeah. interference still didn't help them out. Yeah, of course. But um, this new Spider-Man is very clearly. A new generation of Marvel heroes is being started as we as we watch, and Spider-Man is going to be basically leading the charge. Yeah, and, and you know what? Oh, I've just had a really nice thought. Now you put it that way. You know who I'd like to see appear in the sequel? And this is going to get confusing when I say it. Miss Marvel, Kamala Khan. Oh, oh yeah, oh, cool. oh, oh. she would so work very well with this Peter Parker, this this Spider-Man setup. Honestly. That, yeah. I mean, like, I, w- I would save her for Captain Marvel too, but I, um, but like, if she could be in the third Spider-Man film once she's been established, I don't know which one's going to come first. Um, possibly if that Spider. Comes for, you could see her. Yeah, just it'll as, be Spider-Man You could see her just as Kamala, just as somebody who is totally yeah. fixated on these heroes and adores. But them. yeah, they're contemporaries. It, it, <laughs> that would be a really good fit for this Peter Parker. Mm. Oh. And we've already said on the Ms. Marvel episode how much this world needs a bright, shining Muslim superhero. My God. And she would fit in this 
this slice of the Marvel Universe that is the Spider-Man section, mm. if that makes sense. You know, he's that, already that multicultural, and it, he wouldn't even feel out of place, like I said. Because, and I think that the, if you make her that hero worshiping, like she is, in that it would be so good. Mm. You don't even have to make her the hero, but just have her there, have her as someone Peter knows, or is it's just acknowledge the fact she's there. I think she would be a really good addition to to the homecoming sort of side of things. Yeah, I, I think she'd be great, and and having that sort of continuing that feel of and you're absolutely right about the difference between the the Raimi Spider-Man in terms of him being the hero who will stand up and save us the Marvel Cinematic Universe is about we stand up and be the heroes hmm. and the DC Universe is well look, they'll look up at us and say save us now say no no <laughs> <laughs> I'd hope that it's more than that now. I mean, Wonder Woman. I... It's, uh, I, I, I know I wasn't on it, but I'm one of the few that really loved the, the, the Justice League, but it was because they put hope back. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's surely is, what the DC universe needed. With with Wonder Woman, it's basically right. Okay, who's going to all stand up and be heroes? Who's with me? No, no, just me then. Okay, Sod fine. It, I'll do it. <laughs> I'll tell you what, No Man's Land. Uh, there was someone was going on about the No Man's Land scene, and that is my favourite scene out of anything out of all the DC movies, including Justice League. Mm. And I lost my ever loving mind when Superman turned up yeah. and Flash had a race. But that No Man, because I like. I kind of knew where a lot of this film was going, so I was like, okay, past the comedy stuff, get get me Wonder Woman. And when she started climbing that line, I was like, I just sat up and was like, yes, and this is, and then you just see Wonder Woman be Wonder Woman. Yeah. And it was it was beautiful to I see. I was just sat there with tears streaming down my face. Oh my God, this is so incredible. <laughs> and it's, it's another time I have to hold my hand up and say, when they announced that Gal Gadot was going to be Wonder Woman was like, oh, that's, no, I don't see it. She's miscast. Were they like aiming for like one of the UFC fighters that was in the fast films? Mm. You know what? I was so wrong. Me too. And I've never been so glad to be so wrong. Yep. Ditto. So I hope we've illuminated for you why this is our favourite Spider-Man movie. I remember saying back when we had Bob Chipman himself on our Amazing Spider-Man 2 show, and where we all agreed Sony had to stop with that series, that I named it my favourite at the time. It is now my least favourite with one of the most powerful moments. It doesn't feel earned, it feels like they were in a rush to recreate one of the most abiding of dark comic book moments, but I cared about Emma Stone's Gwen Stacy and was deeply sad to see her go. The rest of the film is a colossal mess, with a few neat elements in there that might have made it a better movie. Now it's a shit approach to make a case for something being really good by slating a favourite of someone else's, and I completely understand why so many people love the first two Raimi movies still. I loved Homecoming in a way that I would have in 2002, or 1992, or 1982, when I was watching Spider-Man and his amazing friends, and the less-remembered Spider-Man. I loved Homecoming because while the wall crawler has been well-established cinematically, it takes a certain combination of elements to make a Peter Parker that I groove with, and Marvel and Sony managed it at last, here in spades. It's one of my very favourites within the MCU, and that is saying something. I love having fun with these guys, with Peter and Ned and Liz and Flash and Michelle and even Toons and Tony and May and Happy. Man. So yeah, when things go wrong for all of these fantastic characters, it hits all the harder. And I, I think this Peter is here for a while, so I'm invested. And we will, of course, be back next year to talk about his next appearance in Avengers Infinity War. And everything that's going to bring.
And to counterpoint my many problems with the Raimi Spider-Mans, I recommend that you check out Bob Chipman's Really That Good episode on the first two Spider-Mans, one and two, where he explains why they are abidingly great films. It is so enthusiastic, crammed with insight and detail, that it leaves most other appraisal of that work behind. Anyway... Um, a final nod again to Zendaya, who I don't think I really managed to uh, get across how much I love the character of Michelle immediately. Yeah. I love the fact that she kind of like pricks the bubble of seriousness whilst also hinting at something a little more painful underneath. She's kind of like Loki. And she's not shitty to people. It's, it's an interesting sort of... It's a very she fine line that they walk with that character. She gets down off the MJ pedestal, then kicks it over. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Um, like there's the point where Peter's sad, and it's the montage of Spider-Man No More, and she does holds up a little picture of him and that she's drawn, and like makes a sad face. Like that could be interpreted as being her being shitty, but it could also be interpreted as her being compassionate. Mm. Mm. It's a In really complex little character she's woven. Also, oh, she's speaking got cork in comic timing. Oh my god, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I suppose this sounds stupid to me. I didn't know up until the end that she was MJ. Of course. That's another, like, you know. Well, everyone just assumed, then they were confounded. Then they were confirmed. It was weird. There was that big stink about, oh, she can't play MJ. She hasn't got uh, red hair. And then um, the casting comes out and it's like, she's not actually playing MJ. She's playing a girl called Michelle. So they shut up for a bit. And then they started going, at the end. And that's not my MJ. Did you want her to say, face it, Tiger? You just hit the jackpot. It's me, in a ribbon, for you to enjoy. Like Like an eclair. What woman (laughs) ever refers to herself as as the jackpot? jackpot. Whilst pointing downwards. Jesus (laughs) Christ. Face it, Tiger. You just hit the jackpot. See, when it comes to this, I I, I do learn sometimes, because it's like when in Superman they cast Lawrence Fishburne as Perry White. I was like, Lawrence Fishburne, don't sorted. I know that guy's a great Mm. actor. I don't care, but all the, he's black. I don't care. It's Lawrence freaking Fishburne. Ultimately, if, Superman. If they're going to stick with like you know white leads for so many of the uh, these established characters and Silver Age characters, like the, the whole, you know, what are they going to go with Miles Morales for a change? They're going to bring in Miles, and he will be a Spider-Man. But that's the thing. If you if you're stuck with these white guys and girls for for your leads for. Anyone you can change the uh, ethnicity of. If you are one of our $5 patrons, you can hear an extra 40 minutes of Spider-Man-related chat which didn't make this final podcast. That is available on the special, exclusive Patreon RSS feed, so you can download it straight to your phone and get listening. And a huge thank you to our top-level $15 patrons this month. That's Joel Robinson, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Abel Savard, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lacluse, David Garcia, Abril, Ben Hayes, Kieran Dashler, and Lorraine Chisholm. The seventh New Century Multiverse story, a novella named The Christmas Thieves, has now been published in paperback and Kindle form. You can get both of those on Amazon. If you're one of our $10 patrons, you get it included in your bonus content, and the audiobook is available on Bandcamp for a very reasonable price. If you love The Muppets Christmas Carol, you might want to check this one out. Where can they find you guys? Uh, Jerome first. Uh, you can find me over at Game Burst. Um, we do a twice-weekly show. Uh, Sundays is a new show, and Thursdays is a roundtable where we do a played or replayed. Um, or uh, board game. 
uh, you can look forward to our upcoming game of the top five game of the year. Uh, I believe either this coming week or the week after. And Neil? You can find me uh, at GameBurst or you can find me at YouTube at youtube.com forward slash the kid dog where I do my history of videos and depending on what show order I just put this out in, I finally finished writing the visceral script. Yay! I wasn't joking, that thing turned into a monster. We will be back next week with Logan. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's out. That's going to dissolve in two hours. No, 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 no. Come fix this. Two hours. You deserve that. I got ice cream in here, You deserve that. You're a criminal. Bye, Mr. Criminal.